Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Thursday, October the 29th, 2020, as we count down toward the end of this year. This year will soon be gone, and all of the problems in it will still be here. That's why we prepare, and one of the great ways that we can prepare is to do two things. Do not forget to enjoy life and do the things that you love. And two, build a business so that you can live your life on your terms instead of the way somebody else wants you to live it. That's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. I got an interview today with uh, a professional fishing guide. Uh, his name is Darren Sadler. Really cool dude. Uh, I got a wire cross during all the setup on this. I thought he was kind of in the, the Midwest being like, I don't know, like Michigan, Minnesota up there. Uh, nailing walleyes or something like that. He's actually from an area uh, which makes sense by the name of his website, and maybe I'm just having a busy week and not paying attention. Uh, but Mozark, uh, Mozark, Missouri, Arkansas, Fishscapes is his business, and he's right up kind of in that uh, that northwestern corner of southern Missouri and northwestern Arkansas, around Bull Shoals Lake and the White River and all that. It's just a gorgeous place. I've spent a lot of time up there. Man, I'm going to tell you, this is a guy that if you're going to ever get up in that area and do some fishing, get with this guy. Because you want to go, let me tell you something, if you like to fish, you want to go to this place and you want to fish. And after you hear today's show, you're going to want to fish with him. But we're going to be talking about a lot of stuff about fishing, rods and gear and being a guide and stuff like that. But we're also going to talk about the entrepreneur side. And this is a classic example of taking something you really love and then getting to that point in your life where you just say, I'm going to jump. I'm going to make it happen. And that brings us to our quote of the day before I bring Darren on. This is by Wayne Dyer. He said, Doing what you love is the cornerstone of having abundance in your life. And I want you to really think about that in maybe a different way than you ever have before. And what I mean by that is you can absolutely have a job and a career that pays good money and have lots of stuff. And anybody looking at you from the outside would say, This person has abundance. They have a, a Mercedes, you know, 300 or whatever. I don't know what the hell brand or what model numbers are Mercedes. It's a Mercedes and a BMW. And, the, and they have, they're a member of a golf course. It's uh, very, very prestigious. Their kids are going to the best schools at indoctrination in their state. And they live on, you know, Maple and Oak streets in a the, the little cul-de-sac in the back just off of that intersection. And they have a beautiful white picket fence. But if you're miserable, do you really have abundance? Abundance isn't about having lots of stuff. It's about feeling like you have everything that you could ever want in your life. That's how I define abundance. I, and maybe not everything, but most of the things that you really want in your life. And, and I think more importantly is not having things you don't want in your life. Right now, I'm not exactly pleased that it's cold as hell outside. Because Northerners, your weather is drunk and passed out in my backyard. And I really wish you all would be responsible. Come down here, pick it up, and take it home where it belongs. And there's things that, you know, I don't, I can't get everything I want. I can't just see something and go, I want that and always just go get it. You know, there, there's limits to what I can do with my wealth. But my life is full of abundance because right now I'm on a microphone doing what I love more than anything else in the world. And that is teaching and helping people. There's nothing I want to do 
with my life more than that. I love to fish. You're going to be able to tell that by my conversation with Darren today. But as much as I love to fish, I love to do this more. I love to do this more. I love to grow my own food, and my backyard's full of it. I, I, I wanted since I was young and broke, and boy, I'll tell you what, broke was three levels above me. You know, when I was 21 years old, it really was three. Le I aspired to be broke someday first, so that I could become wealthy. That's how broke I was at 21 when I first came down here to Texas. And all I ever wanted was to be able to walk out my back door and just not look at anybody and not see anybody. To just have a little piece of wilderness right in my own backyard. And I have that now. To hang out with my dogs. To sit on the morning with the TV off in the house totally quiet with my dog on the couch next to me drinking a hot cup of coffee. These are the things that I've wanted in my life. Everything that I really, really wanted in my life is in my life. And it is only because I do what I love. If I could have all this stuff, but had to do what I hated, it would not feel very abundant. And I would focus more on the things, you know those things that I said you can't actually, I can't actually have? You know, I, I, I look at land watch and stuff like that. Sometimes I'll see a piece of property and it's like 1,300 acres with two and a half miles of river frontage and giant cenotes on it. And, and it's like three and a half million dollars. And I think, boy... I want that. But instead of being like, man, I'll never have that, I think to myself, well, do you really want it? Are you willing to do what's necessary to acquire it? Or are you so happy with what you have that you'd rather do other things with your life now? And I always come down on yes to that. I would rather do other things with my life than do whatever it's going to take to have that $3.5 million, 1,300-acre property with a river going through it. And what do I really love about that in the first place? And am I going to go move there? Am I going to live there? Probably not. So since I'm not going to move there or live there, what I really want is the experience. So I can buy that experience for myself a la carte whenever I want it. And I think totally different because I don't hate my life. I don't hate what I do for a living. I don't even not like it, let alone hate it. And that's what happens when you get to a point where you love what you do. You stop focusing on what you don't have or what you can't have this moment, and you start evaluating whether you really, really want it or not. But as long as you're unhappy, your mind, your mental computer, I talk so much about that term, and we need to understand how powerful that mental computer is. It's going to seek to justify its discontent. I must have a reason that I'm not happy. And if I, if I actually look at the real reasons I'm not happy, they're within my, my, my sphere of control. The person that tells me I really wish I didn't have to live in New York City, but I need the money from my job, doesn't actually want to look at that issue because they know if they do, well, since there's 330 million people in this country, and most of them don't live in New York City, it's clear that one can actually solve this problem. That leaves me to solve this problem, which I don't want to do. Therefore, I need to find something else to really explain my malcontent, which will be I don't have these things, and that leads to it's somebody's fault other than my own. And that leads to the situation we're in now where people actually think that if we change who's running the country or keep who's running the country, magically they'll become happy. That we could somehow fix our own problems with something outside of who and what we are as individuals. It leads to so much discontent. And I just wonder how much happier this country would be if people took what we've been conditioned to believe is selfish and actually made it our primary moral compass, 
which is we owe it to ourselves to find out what we love and become really great at doing that one thing in whatever way makes the most sense for us in our own individual lives and let everybody else figure it out for themselves the same way. And our highest duty after we do this for ourselves is to show others that it can be done but stay out of their way when they're trying to do it instead of impeding their progress with our own ideals about the way things should be. Because if you do what, doing what you love is the cornerstone of having abundance in your life, then doing what others love is the cornerstone of having abundance in their own lives. And if we truly want abundance for all, we have to think a little bit differently. That might lead you down a path to developing something for yourself. Just like Darren did. Darren Sadler, my guest, who I'm about to introduce, again, is a professional fishing guide. He's here today to talk to us about fishing, professional guiding, entrepreneurship, and above all, getting to that point in your life where you're standing at that line and you're either going to stay where you are or you're going to take that leap. You're going to take that next step. And remember, I've talked about this before. When they say about the first step being the hardest, the first step being the most important, if you're standing at a line and you take a first, if you think a first step is just that one foot going out and putting it down, you haven't taken the step. That left foot, if you stepped off on your right, is still on that line. When it comes to a first step, it has to be a full step. You have to leave behind the old and step all the way fully through and into the new and take the shot while you can. That's what Darren did. He's here to talk to us about it. With that, hey, Darren, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thank you, Jack. Man, I'm glad to have you on today. We're going to talk about being a fishing guide, and we're going to talk about fishing. Some of my best friends in the world are guides, and probably my favorite recreational activity is fishing. So we've been talking about kind of a lot of heavy stuff lately, so this will be a great break for the audience, and we'll be able to talk about getting out on the water and, 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 and catching fish, and also a little bit about the concept of being a guide and, and how people can create their own careers for themselves. So I think it'll be a good... Like I said, break. We just spent two days talking about coming disruptions and pending recessions. So this will be a good one. Yeah. Um, much yeah, happier. I hope you out. Much happier subject. I, I I was saying recently in a show where I was on as a guest, I have never once had a political or economic thought when there was a redfish peeling drag off my reel. Like you just <laughs> you can't. You're in that moment. Um, But on that note, I mean, it's something I kicked around in my youth, especially. Being a fishing guide sounds like a great gig, man. Um, and I have a gig that people think is a great gig, too, and it is. But I think a lot of times people miss the journey, like the work in the journey to actually be successful at something that lets you do what you love. What was your journey like, you know, coming to actually being a successful guide where you could actually, you know, make a living doing it? Uh, boy, I tell you, Jack, great question. Uh, long process, great <laughs> question. So I spent the majority of my life in retail. Um, I've got 15-plus years of corporate uh, in retail management, and I've always known in my heart fishing is my passion, but I'm thankful for the opportunity that I had to work in retail. It taught me a lot uh, about working with people, and I, it gave me the opportunity uh, to develop my people skills, if you will. But honestly, um, 
I just got tired of the corporate life. I used to be like everybody else. I was a slave to the grind wheel, if you know what I mean, and uh, just happy to get that weekly paycheck and just kept uh, toughing out, uh, going to work every day and truly knowing that uh, it wasn't where I wanted to be. And finally, one uh, one day, Many years after I had numerous friends, my sister, other family members tell me, and I always knew that a fishing guide is what I was designed to do, but again, I was a slave and afraid to take the journey, if you will, and it just set me back, and finally one day I woke up and I said, you know, if I'm going to eat ramen noodles on somebody else's dime, I'm going to do it on my own. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, yeah, from there, the uh, all the work started. Uh, I left retail. I got a blue-collar job at a factory here in town, working 50 to 60 hours a week and uh, studied for the Coast Guard uh, in my spare time and in the evenings and on lunch break. Did that for two years, and uh, I'm not going to lie, I'm not much of a test taker. Um, I'm a hands-on kind of guy. I do not learn well from a book. So after failing uh, the exams twice, uh, I didn't quit. And eventually, I finally, the third time around, I passed all my exams, got my Coast Guard license, and with uh, a little bit of financial backing from my sister, uh, we opened up Mozart Fishscapes together, and here I am. It's interesting. I, I, I fish with a lot of guides, and we're going to get into maybe some of the things that retail helped you with once you were a guide in a minute. Sure. But um, I I always have lots of comp- – you know, you're in a boat with somebody four hours, six hours. Some trips I take are eight-hour trips. You – are there with that person and maybe a friend or two, you have conversations. And one thing I always talk about is how they got into guiding. And I've heard every path imaginable from, well, I grew up in South Florida. I fished every day of my life. And when I turned 18, I got my license and started guiding. As abrupt as that to one of my best friends here in this area, um, you had a job in sales and he uh, bought a boat and then he started guiding and then he took every every penny of profit from his guiding trips and paid his boat off early. Then he paid his truck off with his guide money. Then he quit his job. Mm-hmm. And I've heard ev- you give me a, 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 a variable in there, and, and what I've determined with all of them is they made a decision at some point to F and jump, and I'm going to do this Absolutely. thing. And that's that's the thing. And I don't think it has anything to do with being a fishing guy. I think it has to do with having something that's yours instead of something that you work for somebody else for. Every person that makes that leap successfully to entrepreneur has to at some point get to the line and say, okay, no more screwing around. I'm doing this. And I think that takes a mental cool. switch. And I think the, the coolest part about it is, and I bet you can attest to this now, once you do it, it's like the matrix. You unplug, you're not going back. Uh, never. No, I absolutely love my job. I love what I do. I never have a bad day on the water, and I'm always looking forward to uh, going to work every single day. That one guy I talked about to paid his car, then his truck, and then went full-time. Like He used to post pictures every day on his Instagram, view from the office this morning. And it was always sunrises, so they were always different, and they were always perfect. right? I mean, it's just like that is – and there's days you get rained out or whatever, but, man – It, it, I, I, the same thing I say about what I do as a podcaster. Sometimes it's hard, but it always beats a real job. 
know, it really does. It always beats it does. a J-O-B type job of any kind. So on retail, go ahead. Yes, go ahead. I was just say on, on the retail, on yeah. the retail experience, right? I imagine one of the things that did for you is to work successfully in retail, and you know, not be the guy that puts the wrong, you know, labels the corn watermelon and and, and can't get that right. Like actually successful. One of the most important things is being able to communicate with people and to be able to talk to them no matter who they are. And when you get somebody in your boat for four hours, like you have to be able to do that because the experience isn't just catching fists, it's a total experience. So I imagine that helped you a lot in being able to have a conversation with people and, and, and carry that in a way that made them comfortable the whole time they're in the boat. 100%, you betcha. Um, and um, I like my downtime. When, I, when I'm on my own, um, I like my alone time. But I absolutely love people. I enjoy talking. I enjoy working with people. And, yes, I would say that is the number one as far as retail uh, is concerned. If you're going to uh, survive in retail, it's, uh, yeah, you said it right. That is the utmost important skill is being able to communicate. Um, it taught me a lot of other things along the way, but – I have to tell you a funny story. Uh, I've never had a bad trip. Have I had trips where I've struggled to catch fish occasionally? Yeah, sure. Fish don't always behave the way that you want them to. Uh, but I've never had a trip where a person was upset that they didn't catch enough fish. And partly uh, due to that is the fact that, uh, you know, I'm a people's kind of person. I make it so much more than just the fishing experience. It's so much more about catching fish. It is truly having a friend in the boat and being able to to make a lasting friendship. And we talk about everything, weddings, kids, families, uh, jobs. Uh, uh, but, yes, I, if I did not have communication skills to be able to do that with another person, I would not be able to carry on a conversation. Uh, so I don't have that problem on my end. I got uh, now my funny story. A couple of years ago, I was on a guided fishing trip, and I had an older couple. They were probably in their late sixties, pushing seventy, and I'm not even. I don't remember exactly where they were from. I want to say Iowa or some someplace up north. Uh, Jack, I got to tell you, they did not speak. It was the worst. Now, I, I love my job, and I love being yeah. out there every day. It was the hardest eight hours I have ever had in a day because I could not carry on a conversation. It made for the longest trip you could ever imagine. Mm. Yeah, I have a, my. But, go ahead. Oh, no, I'm sorry. That's it? No. Uh, what I was saying, I have my friend in, in South Florida that's, that I take trips with every time I go out there, and he's gotten an hour. He has, like, four captains running other boats, and – he has, he has customers he still takes out, and he has people, if he doesn't know them or he's taken them out before and they're like that, he's like, yeah, Captain Mike's going to take you out today. Like, the, he defers those off to other people, and I guess that's something sure. you can do if you build a business large enough to be able to either turn away work or to, uh, to have others that can, that can handle it. He's like, yeah, you're one of the few people I actually take out personally anymore. Because you're going to have that in any business. You're going to have people that, they're not bad. They're just, I don't know, awkward or whatever it is. Like, it's yeah, just they're, not They're on work. a different wavelength. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. That said, what's your favorite part about your job? What, what, what is the best part of it? 
I can answer that. I get asked that question actually quite a bit from clients when we're out and about on fishing excursions. And somebody will ask me, what's your favorite part about guiding? What do you like most about guiding? Why do you do this? I answer it this way. When I was asked that question the first time, I actually had to think about it. I'm like, well, why am I? But after several questions down the road, I really, after thinking hard about this, I understand why. And it is, I truly believe in every fisherman's lifetime, you will come to a point someday where you've caught enough fish. Now, I'm there already. Do I like catching fish? Absolutely. Have I caught enough fish in my lifetime? Sure, I have. I call this a graduation. When you progress as a fisherman and you get to the point of your graduation where it becomes more about the experience and the scenery and everything that goes with it as opposed to just the catching, you've graduated. I've graduated, and what, what, why I guide and why I love it so much is if I can help even just a wee bit for my client or another person to reach that particular level where it's more than just the catching, it's about the whole experience, if you will, I've done my job. So basically, you're I saying is you're a teacher. I yes, yes. Thank you for that. <laughs> the 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 best the what 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 I love most about guiding is the instructing and the teaching, and I love being able to to progress my client or whoever it may be to the next level, helping them journey and and you know make it further down the road and uh, progress as a fisherman on their own. I love teaching and the instructing behind. It's so much more than just fishing. I, I love agree. taking kids, families, couples. Uh, uh, I just had a trip two, two or three days ago. I had a trip. Uh, I was fly fishing on Lake Tanincomo there in Branson, Missouri, and had a brand-new couple, never had a fly rod in their hand before. And it was a crash course. It was a four-hour course, but I took them from never – having a fly rod in their hand to be able to cast adequately enough, and they caught three or four fish apiece, and they were just absolutely thrilled, and I will see them again. Absolutely. And that's what it's all about. And I think there's there's a ton of different things that people don't realize that you would end up teaching a customer as a guide. Some, some people are going to come in, and there's almost nothing you can teach them about how to handle a rod, how to cast, whatever, but that person might really benefit from the use of electronics and how to read structure, for instance. Or, yeah. uh, and it, it, who knows what? Like, one of the things I like to do, I like to, like, if I go somewhere I've never been, I like to hire a guy to take me out and catch stuff I never caught before. And, and there's commonalities, as you know, across fishing. I mean, there's, there's a way to feel the sensitivity of whether or not a fish is ready, you know, you're ready to set a hook or not. But there's a vast difference in chasing white bass versus fishing for snook and mangroves like they're different worlds and 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 going with someone that's done nothing but that for years that's a that's a like a a fast on-ramp to you, you bypass you know months and months of frustration and go straight into what works and and then you have that thing you kind of like added to your portfolio of things you know how to do and then i found like even though they're different every time you do that you pick something up that when you go back to your own backyard, translates back. And it's really cool. 
Yes, absolutely. Uh, There's a lot of benefits in hiring a guide, uh, as you just said. Mostly, if you're fishing for something brand new to you that you've never fished for, you know, is it worth a couple, two, three hundred dollars to hire a guide and help you figure out the process or go out on your own and hope to be lucky? Yeah, I think I'm going to go for uh, plan A. I'm going to have some help and I'm going to try to uh, get further down the journey, if you will, a little quicker. Yeah, and I think there's like two splits there with learning. Like, if I'm going to Florida and I'm going to be there for two weeks, I, I don't, I'm not renting a boat and floating around out in the middle of the Gulf trying to find the, 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 the reef structure that my guide takes me out to all the time without having GPS coordinates because I can be five feet away from it and I don't <laughs> know it, right? And I'm never going right. to find it, right? And I'm, so, and I, I don't have time for that crap and I'm on vacation so I want to save my time. On the other hand, like, If I move to a new place and there's a lake near me and I go out there with my own boat and I try two or three times and I'm just not having success, I'll hire a guide and say, look, I don't even care what we catch. I'm paying you to teach me about this lake. And, and, and I might hire that guy four or five or six times so that I get out with their, out in different seasonal cycles. Because anybody can catch white bass when, you know, you're driving your boat and you look at there's a windy break point and they're, they're feeding on shad on the surface. You could literally yes. hook a freaking treble hook to a pop top and throw it in there and catch them. That that doesn't mean two weeks from now you're going to be able because white bass. I know you. That's one of the fish you guide for. The key with them isn't catching them; it's finding them. If you could put something shiny in front of them the right way, they'll bite it. Yes. But but they're yes. here one day and they're gone tomorrow. They're wolf packs. So I'll hire a right. guide and say, "Teach me this lake. Teach me the structure. Teach me the seasons," and and I'll pay them. I'll pay a guide better for that because I know that they know they're. They're teaching themselves out of a job at some point. Correct. Yes. One of the hardest things with uh, you know being a guide is staying on top of the fish. Uh, it's like you know mo- most anything that we hunt or fish for deer. What but they all travel and change throughout the season. So uh, it's it's we don't just get up and jump in a boat and go fishing there's a lot of prep work that goes in behind this uh a lot of scouting trips trying to stay on top of the fish and track their movements and uh yeah it it has a certain amount of homework yeah i think that's one another reason to just you know understand the value a guide brings when you're paying him for a trip is he was probably on the lake that you're fishing today yesterday and that subtle pattern change has already been noted And like I said, you could have been there two weeks ago, and that pattern has totally shifted. And if you fish a lake consistently, you you start to see that. But if you, I, that's why I have. I'm not a bass fisherman, like you know, big mouth bass and smallmouth bass. I'll do it when they're there, but it's not my, it's not my thing, you know. And mm-hmm. but I have tremendous respect for these tournament guys that they show up in a city they've never been to on a lake they've never been to. They get like one day to go out and figure out what's going on. And the next day, they're competing against guys that fish that lake every day, and they win. Like, to me, that yes. shows a level of mastery that even if it's not the game species I choose to pursue, I have incredible respect for that level of adaptation. But when it comes to hiring a guy, that's back to most of us aren't going to you – know, I have tremendous respect for basketball players that play in the NBA for their talent. But I'm not yes. going to be dra- draining threes and, and, and doing backward dunks. Right, like that's that's a level of skill that most of us are just not going to uh, attain. So that's why we hire people that have some level of skill we don't to, to kind of bring us up a level. 
Sure, sure. Maybe that's why I fish, because, Jack, I'm 5'8", and I don't play basketball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm almost six foot, and I still don't play basketball. I'm the slowest <laughs> right? non-jumping white guy you've ever met. Um, when somebody, you, you. you mentioned fly fishing. That's something I haven't done in a long time. I grew up doing it, though. Uh, Pennsylvania is a lot oh, bigger yeah. of a fly fishing venue than than Texas is. You can do it here. It's just it's not the same. What would you tell someone who's interested in getting started with fly fishing other than if they really love it, it will consume their life? <laughs> uh, well, uh, and ironically, most people, if they if you begin fly fishing the right way, uh, I will say the majority of my clients that have never fly fished before, when I take them out and teach them, uh, they get hooked. Yeah. It is one of those sports where it, it um, fly fishing brings to the table a little different um, persona, if you will, than conventional fishing. And especially when you're wading, you are you have so much more of a, a up close and personable relationship to the fish, if you will, uh, that it brings a different element to the game. And fly fishing is just it's so relaxing. Uh, it's, uh, and you know, truthfully, honestly, most people, if, if, when you become a fly fisherman, it's more about the scenery and the solitude than it is just about catching fish. I think there's phenomenal, something to it too, with sport. like, you start, like you said, the scenery and the solitude, like you start planning your trips because I want to fish that river, right? Like, yes. you, it's not, I want to catch the cutthroat trout that are in that river. If I do great, but I want to, I want to fish that river, that That, that I find is a difference in people that are, you know, classic spin fishermen or whatever and fly fishermen. I just want to, almost like I want to hike that trail. I agree. Correct. Uh, if I could say anything else about uh, fly fishing, as far as learning or getting started, if you will, um, I would recommend uh, going with somebody that is that has done it before, has some level of experience. It's kind of like golf. Uh, it's easy to pick up bad habits, and um, I see a lot of folks on the river every day that are frustrated because they haven't been taught the correct way, or they've they've learned these bad habits. And once you get in to a bad habit, it's hard to quote perfect the golf swing, if you will. Mm -hmm. so that, that's Sha Shaquille O'Neal practicing free throws. Doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> If you're throwing you. bricks, you're throwing <laughs> bricks, right? <laughs> Correct. Correct. Yeah. So, yeah, try to find somebody that has some experience that can walk with you and kind of teach you the ropes, if you will, learn the right way before you begin developing bad habits that are hard to break later on. But let me also say that fly fishing, I have taken plenty of people with no experience and can get them casting adequately enough within a four-hour, uh, half-day guide trip and uh, casting to catching fish. So don't let it – I see a lot of people that, oh, that just – that looks way too hard. I can't do that. Yes, you can. It's not that hard. Yeah, I agree. Like, A River Runs Through It is a great movie, but you're not going to have to sit and look at a Metrodome for 10 years of your life to become good at fly fishing. It's <laughs> No, not at all. Right, no, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It's not that hard. You know you're casting the line instead of the fly. That, that, that goes a long way right there. One of the other things I've seen with fly Correct. fishing that I think is really great about it is it's an easy skill to practice without going fishing, at least you know, learning your different casts, like roll casts and stuff. Like, If you have an open Absolutely. space... 
You don't need a leader, you know, because you're casting line. Just pick the rod up and just start. Especially, like, I would say people that, like, if you're going to take a trip and you haven't been out for a while and you have your own gear, get out and do a little bit of backyard getting back into that muscle memory and what have you so that you can kind of make the what? most of that trip. I've taught a lot of casting lessons in a grass strip right in front of the fly shop. Sure. Oh, literally, yeah, your front yard, your backyard, neighbor's pond. Uh, no, you don't have to go trout fishing to learn how to cast a fly rod. Do it in your living room. Yep, I agree. I learned I learned in my grandfather's front yard. That's, you know. <laughs> There you go. Can, can you drop the line on the broccoli plant down in the garden? That was, now you can do that and go find a fish. That was, that was how I learned. Um, let's talk about rod and reel setup. And, and, I mean, fly rod is obviously specialized into its own world. In the world of, like, spin casting, bait casting, whatever, do you think that people can have, like, kind of one basic setup for almost everything? Or does it really benefit people to have specialized setups for specialized situations? I'm glad you asked that question. I, I, I get that same question. Uh, and yes and no would be my answer, depending on the level of how serious that you want to get into it. If you want to become a serious fisherman and you take on this hobby, knowing that, um, will it benefit you to have many or a number of outfits? Yes, because you can't trout fish conventional style you can't trout fish with the same outfit that you're on table rock lake you know fishing for six and seven pound bass 12 pound test moat will generally not catch a trout in gin clear water so uh, now can you have a one do all setup eh, you can get pretty close for instance if i have a seven-foot, medium-light, spinning outfit uh, with a, a spinning reel spooled with six-pound line. I can use that to catch white bass. I can finesse fish to catch smallmouth or largemouth. And more than likely, I can tie a two-pound leader to the end of that. I could take that trout fishing, sure, catch all the bluegill and panfish in the world. So, yes, you can do it. You just have to do it within the limit limitations. Uh, but, uh, different outfits will, if you have, say, I could probably have somebody cover the gamut within probably three to four outfits, have a bait caster, maybe two and two spinning outfits. And you, and you can get a whole lot done on that. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I was fishing with a friend recently, a little bank fishing for some catfish and stuff. And he, he was looking at what I was fishing with. And ironically, we're like, six and a half foot medium light action rod with like a 300 class reel on it. Right. And he's like, so you use the yeah. same thing surf fishing that you use to do this with. And I'm like, yes, but no, <laughs> yes, right. but no. So, right. so when I'm, <laughs> when I'm tossing live shrimp, you know, 50 feet into a gut between two sandbars to catch mostly whiting and trout. Yes. However, there's probably a rod holder with a much beefier rod with, like, 25-pound braid and a fluorocarbon leader or a steel leader, depending on what I'm targeting, uh, with a bait feeder reel that's targeting much larger fish further out. And I'm, I'm playing with these little guys, and when that rod goes, that rod goes down. And, and, and so, yes, but no. Like, and that, that's because right. that rod is targeting a specific thing. You're not 
you're not just be blunt. You're not going to land a five foot black tip on the rod that I described to catch whiting on. It's not happening. Like I don't care how yeah. good you are. That first of all, without the steel leader, first thing that that line touches a tooth, it's gone. In your area, that would be like a muscle lunge. Like if you hook a muskie on two pound line, I don't care how good you are. If that <laughs> good luck, I don't care if it's twelve. <laughs> if it touches a tooth or gets behind a gill plate, mm -hmm. bye bye. Right. So like yes. yes, the answer. So my favorite answer to questions like this, and they come in all gamuts, gardening, whatever. These are two words you'll start using for the rest of your life now. It depends. <laughs> it, right, right, yeah. yes, yeah. It, it depends. And it's then, almost like you can't ask a golfer to golf and do his job with one club. Unless he's a, a gimmick uh, trick shot guy. Like, I, I know a dude, his, his, uh, his name was Wedgie Winchester, and I watched him play 18 holes with a putter. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But he couldn't play his best game. That was that was the trade-off. But this was a guy, like he played in a charity tournament, and he beat everybody in his group playing the whole course with a putter. <laughs> you know, but you're, you're to your point, yeah, if he, was, if he was playing in a PGA tournament, he wouldn't have done that crap, right? Like, so, you like, people can be exceptional with things that don't make sense. Because somebody's going to be like, Jack, guess what? I caught a six-foot black tip with a medium-light rod running 12-pound line. You know, okay, you got lucky. Your fish was stoned. I don't know. You know, It ate a stingray and had a stomach ache right before you caught it. I don't know. But, like, in general, there are specialized cases. Another thing we do down here, I don't know if you do the same thing or call it the same thing up there. We call it hell pet for white bass when they're suspended. We'll take a, um, like a D22 or a hellbender, take all the hooks off mm -hmm. it, tie a leader off the back of it. Basically, it acts like a small downrigger. And we'll put a pet spoon uh -huh. behind that, and we'll tow that at about two and a half miles an hour, and it will run right between 18 and 20, 22 feet. Okay, if you try that with a light-action spinning rod, the, the flex on that rod is stupid. Like, it, it doesn't have the, <laughs> the ass to do it. And so you're going to sure. run, a, you know, a bait, feet, a, a, a bait casting reel with kind of a stiff, medium-heavy action rod to do that because that's the application. So, like, there are places where specialized is good, but when you said, you know, medium light, seven foot rod, I own tons of rods that are that six to seven foot, medium to medium light to light action, because they are the most universal. Very, yes. Uh, and in the freshwater scheme of things, you know, where I'm at up here, uh, you know, with seven foot, medium to medium light rod, you can cover all your panfish, your crappie, your white bass. You can finesse uh, smallmouth with the Ned Rig, best bait ever, in my opinion, uh, and uh, trout fish. So, you know, right there, you've got over a half a dozen dozen species that, yes, you can do on one outfit. Makes sense. What, what are your thoughts Sounds on like electronics? a lot of fun to me. Yeah, absolutely. What are your thoughts on electronics? Um, I have found them to be not necessary, but almost necessary because they do so much for you. They do. Um, let me tell you what I used to do before I was able to afford electronics. Uh, and I will, I'll, uh, I'll give this to anybody out there that doesn't have a boat or is limited to just fishing off of the bank. Or let's say you just have an old John boat or canoe. You have no electronics. Uh, 
it's the same thing that we as hunters, if you spend enough time in the woods learning how to read the land around you, if you will, uh, will teach you a lot about game movement. Same thing with the fish. If I were, and the majority of my life growing up as a kid, I didn't have uh, a fancy boat. Uh, I grew up, I had a little 15-foot V bottom, no motor, um, uh, and I, you know, just use an oar or an old paddle and, and push that thing around the lake in the backyard until uh, eventually I was able to upgrade a little bit and put a motor on the back of it, and then things really got fun. But if you learn to read the topography, if you will, it will teach you a lot about where and the, the, the type of fish and, and where they're going to be at. For instance, if I'm standing on the bank and I look and I see down to my left, I see a bluff line, a point on that bluff line. Well, that bluff line should tell me that, you know what, I bet right there it probably drops into a little bit deeper water. Mm-hmm. And right on that point, it's probably going to swing up maybe on a shelf and that point could extend out into the water a little bit. Well, chances are, I know that that point right there, we as fishermen refer to that as a rest stop, if you will, main lake points or rest stops between fish uh, transitioning between shallow to deep water. So anybody can do this without electronics. Learn to read the land, the topography around you, and that will give you an idea because most of what you see above water generally is close to the same below the water. Agreed. And I'll like some of the things you can do without electronics, especially like you mentioned bank fishing. Um, you have no electronics, you're fishing this lake. It's no, there's no obvious uh, points or whatever, let's say. Let's say it's a park pond. It's pretty much a big circle. And, but sure. you know if you have a drop-off, that just before that drop-off is kind of the same thing you're talking about. What I came up with as a kid, because I didn't have boat, I have shit, and it's Pennsylvania is where I grew up, so it was cold a lot of the year. So mm-hmm. you're not going wading out mm-hmm. in the lake when the water's 48 degrees, no, to find out where, well, exactly where's the drop-off. I would take a bobber and a weight capable of pulling that bobber underwater, And then I would just keep letting more and more line out, and then I would be able to just throw that line out a certain distance, and if that bobber didn't go under the water, I'd make it a little longer, throw it back out there, and when it just went under the water, I'd be like, okay, there's six foot right there. And so you basically were creating a a low-tech depth finder from a heavy sinker and a small float. And then you could, okay, right there, boom, that drops off three foot. Well, if I come in three foot from there and I suspend a bait about six inches off the bottom – I'm not going to guarantee that there's going to be fish there, but boy, that's a decent place to take a start, right? I mean, um, and, and so that type of thing, you can always figure something out, but it's also nice when, yeah. like, you can take your iPilot and your hummingbird depth yeah. finder that talk to each other, and you get close to where you know you need to be, and you turn off the gas motor, and you hit a button, and your, I, your iPilot drops in the water, and then you turn on your fish finder and click on a thing and hit go, and then... The boat goes to that spot and holds itself there. That's that's pretty nice it's too. A, <laughs> it's amazing, and I I would recommend for folks that have the money and can afford to buy electronics, yes, utilize this skill because. Uh, and you'll notice if if you follow the tournament of uh, uh, whoever it may be, Bassmasters, uh, FLW. 
if you follow these guys on TV, you will notice when it comes time for a tournament and those two or three days that they have before a tournament, the pre-fishing days, they do more driving around the water using their electronics than they ever do casting a, a rod. And that's where your electronics come into play because where back in the day we could only figure fish out by making a thousand casts. Uh, we would have to, you know, basically fish to figure out what the fish were doing. Now you drive around with your electronics and you can basically read the lake from the bottom to the top and, and know where the fish are, drive right in, make one cast, hook a fish. You're like, okay, they're here. You've got a starting point. It cuts the fishing time literally down to half, if not less than that. And then go back to low so tech. By all means. Go ahead. Uh, by all means, electronics, are, they are your friend. They will help you out a lot. Uh, just depends on, you know, who you are as an individual, if you can afford them or not. Just but so you, there's a lot of electronics out there that you don't have to pay $10,000 for. Darren, just for you and the audience to note, um, I'm trying not to step on you there. I, we, we, on my end, we've got a bit of a delay, so if I talk over you, just, just pick back up. Oh, um, no problem. On, on the... Uh, On the, uh, the electronics, too, going back to low-tech, one of the most valuable things I think fishermen do not avail themselves of is pen and paper or an app or something like that. If you have a like fantastic freaking day at a particular body of water, you want to remember what date that was, what the weather conditions were like, what the water temperature was. Because odds are, Absolutely. when that time comes next year... And the, and the weather's similar, and the water temperature's similar on that body of water in that spot. It's probably going to be good again, right? So if you're never going back there because you were on vacation in upstate Washington or something, okay, fine. But if if it's your if you go out to a place and you have one of those days where you can't not catch fish, you kind of want to take note of that. Or if you fish a place consistently and you notice the bite starts to pick up level off and go back down. That whole cycle, you want to keep some kind of a record on that. I keep like a, it's like a leather-bound journal in the door of my truck where I just jot that down mm -hmm. and I'll look back through it from time to time. Oh, yeah, I need to go out there. But whether you do it electronically or not, I think that's something that like the really good fisherman, especially the guy that's like all he does is go fishing a few times a week, bank fishing or whatever out of his house. That's one thing they either have the memory where they don't need to do it or they they do it and they have that in common. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and again, like we talked about earl earlier, uh, that is doing your homework. I used to do it by paper. Uh, I still do some, but I have uh, a form on my phone. Every trip I take, uh, I record all the information from, you know, my client uh, and their contact information so I can reach out to them again. And in that same form down below, I have basically everything that you're talking about, my body of water, uh, where I was fishing, and uh, then I have a place at the bottom for notes, and I can keep track. So I remember uh, that particular day where I was at, what was working or not, et cetera. Yeah, you just said something so important there. To to businesses like all businesses, but especially your business, records of who you took and an ability to contact them. The, the guy I was talking about locally here, unfortunately, passed away a few years ago, but he was one of my best friends. And the year he started doing this, he said this one tip increased his revenue by 25% that year. 
And so what he did is he started doing what you said. He kept you know email, text numbers of every single client he took out. And he would get people that would contact him and like they want to take a trip, but they're like they want to go alone and the money seems like a lot of money. And he'd say, if 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 I have somebody that would split a trip with you, would that make it easier? And then, you know, you'd have four or five guys that he knew he could offer that to that wouldn't be disruptive or, and would get along with people. And he'd hit them all up. Hey, I've got a trip next Tuesday if somebody can split a trip with a guy. Or, mm-hmm. or you have a guy booked for Thursday. He calls you Tuesday. I can't go. I, all of a sudden, I have an open, uh, open boat on Thursday. And those two approaches, he, he put 25% more revenue in his pocket just because, because up till then he had not been doing that. And I think it's crazy. I've said over and over with business, the value of your business is your customer base. When one company buys another company, they don't buy their their inventory and their machinery. They buy their customer base. And so as a small entrepreneur, we have to think the same way. Yes. Um, my sister told me, she heard a quote some time ago, uh, and it may have been from one of your podcasts, Jack. My sister is a, a huge fan uh, uh, and a, 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 a longtime listener of yours, and I believe she was listening to one of your podcasts some time back, and you had made mention uh, uh, if you are, as a business owner or um uh, If you are not keeping track of your clients, employees, etc., and you are not tracking emails, you're losing business. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's easier to get a person to buy again than buy the first time. Like that's just that's just human nature. It's much easier to get that that second purchase out of somebody. That second action. Um, moving back to just fishing in general, do you have like an all-time favorite lure? Is there like a one lure or bait you recommend above all others, like do it all type uh, thing? Yes. Well, uh, yes. Uh, now, I swing both sides of the fence. Fly fishing is my passion. I love to fly fish, but I just love fishing. I love catching fish. So, on the other realm of fishing, conventional style. I would have to say it's the Ned Rig, N-E-D, Ned Rig. The thing is amazing. Have you ever heard of this, Jack? I have not. I'm looking it up right now as you talk about it. <laughs> so, All I can think is Ned Flanders um, and Oakley Doakley, let's catch fishies. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> I said, when you say Ned Rig, all I can think of is uh, Ned Flanders from The Simpsons. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. the the... The Ned Rig is not really new technology. Guys were doing this back in the 50s and 60s, but in a sense, all it is is using a downsized piece of plastic. Now, typically a Ned Rig is would be half of a Cinco. I know you know what a Cinco is, yeah. or some folks call them a plastic uh, uh, cigar worm, if you will. So it's literally... You cut one in half, and you put it on the back of a jig head. So your overall bait is not any more than three and a half, maybe four inches long. Typically, we use what we call a mushroom-style jig head, and uh, uh, you can use any number of different types of plastics. The Ned Rig is really unlimited, but... The gentleman, Ned, uh, I forget this gentleman's name, somewhere he, uh, out of Kansas, the guy that actually 
develop the current Ned Rig, if you will. It's utilizing uh, a uh, a type of plastic called Tenex, where it's a really stretchy type of plastic. It's made by uh, Z-Man, Z-Man Bates. It's called a Zinker. Same thing as a Cinco, but it's made out of this different formulation of plastic, and this stuff floats. But it doesn't it, it because of its sponginess it doesn't stick to barbs very well so what we do we use a mushroom style jig head where we can run the hook through it push it up to the to the jig head and using a gel style super glue we super glue it to the back of the jig head okay and this thing, I promise you, Jack, will catch you if you put it on, once again, a seven-foot medium-to-medium-light spinning rod. I typically, the, most of my finesse outfits that I guide with, if you will, I run a 15-pound braid to, like you mentioned earlier, a six-pound fluorocarbon leader. Put a Ned rig on it, you can catch fish 12 months out of the year. You know, I'm looking at those on, like, Google Images right now, and what I think is kind of ironic, didn't know anything about them, certainly going to try them. If you had asked me the same question, I would have said it gets it, which is not that much different in size, form, function. Um, right, you are correct. The gets it's caught fish for since, well, I was using them in the 80s. Right, yeah. I don't know when they, you know, they first came out, but, like, in Fisherman did a big thing on them back in like 84 or 85. And that was like, back then when you were a fisherman, you learned about fishing from magazines. Like there was, there was no internet. There were no YouTube videos. It was like outdoor life right. in Fisherman, you know, uh, field and stream. Those were the big three. And, you know, in Fisherman, they had had like the next season, man, everybody had freaking pumpkin seed gets it. Like <laughs> that was, and, and they worked really well and they still do. Um, I think yes. kind of jigging in general has so much flexibility. There's so many different ways you can you can fish any sort of kind of jig type uh, bait because you can do a straight retrieve, you can do a slow retrieve, you can do kind of a, a bouncing retrieve, you can do a vertical jig. Um, I would say my most versatile lure here on lakes, not at all water, but on lakes in boats is a slab, um, like a like a one ounce slab. There's almost nothing mm -hmm. you can't catch. I've caught. I've been out vertical jigging for white bass and caught, you know, 12-pound, 18-pound blue catfish on, on slabs sure. over humps. Like, it's – and people like, you can't fish topwater. Well, you can't fish topwater. I can fish topwater with it. And we'll take a, a slab and about 18 inches in front of it, we'll do a little jig head with, like, a twisty tail. And that hmm. is dynamite on, uh, on whites, especially when they get kind of shy because, you know, they're competitive, right? So – a lot of times when you're like vertically slabbing for whites and you hook one, if you just wait a couple seconds, you'll feel the weight double because they get competitive. And if that fish grabs that slab and it starts, it's running around down there, it looks like it's chasing a glass minnow. And of course, right. greedy bumble, you know, greedy bumble white bass who has to have what the other one is after comes over and grabs it. We'll get doubles like that. And when you fish <laughs> in top water, so you need a heavy action rod to do this. But a, a rapid retrieve when they're surfacing, we will pull them off top water, and it's 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 back to what can you do with the lure? I think. Absolutely, there's so many lures that are very effective. I love the fact that you mentioned a jig. Uh, 
for me, a jig is a confidence bait. Uh, I love a jig because I can do so much with it, uh, and I can cover a lot of water. And a jig, much like a Ned rig, I can catch fish 12 months out of the year fishing a jig. Uh, very versatile bait for bass. Uh, so, again, it's it's fishing what, what you have confidence in and fishing a type of bait that you can be very versatile with. Do you do any jigs? Uh, you can go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, uh, jigs. You can swim them. You can drag them on the bottom. You mm-hmm. can hop them. You can you can cut them back and downsize. Turn them into a finesse jig. You can fish them full size and give the fish a larger profile. Endless array. You can change the trailer on a jig. Whatever trailer you may be using, by changing the trailer, you can change the whole aspect of how the jig fishes. Versatile, very versatile. On that note, do you make any of your own tackle or tie any flies or anything? I find most people that start fly fishing end up doing some fly tying. Uh, absolutely. In fact, uh, I was listening. You'll, you'll like this. I was listening to one of your podcasts. You did a podcast here most recently uh, about building a content-based business. Yep. I think it was, yeah, so uh, I was sitting at my fly tying desk, tying flies, listening to that podcast. <laughs> <laughs> cool. But, yeah, so I tie all my own flies. I make a lot of my own tackle. I I make all my own jigs, my bass jigs. I've done that for years, spinner baits, buzz baits. Uh, um, one, it saves me a lot of money as a guy not having to buy uh, a lot of this uh, at retail prices if I can build it myself for a whole lot cheaper. And, you know, B, again, it's 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 a passion thing. Uh, it goes right along with fishing. I love being able to create my own tackle, go out and catch fish on it. Absolutely. The first tie, fly I ever tied myself, was a, it looked like a white um, pom-pom. And it was this pond I used to fish when I was a kid all the time. Um, and we used to fish for carp there just for fun. We'd little ultralight rods, and these oh. were like two and a half, three pound <laughs> carp, right? And so uh-huh. many people came down there and threw bread that they ate bread off the surface. So you'd take like a, a number eight uh, bait holder and pull it into a piece of bread, no weight, and try to throw it out there and float it. And you'd maybe hook one in 12 because soft bread, they'd hit it and fall off. So mm-hmm. I tied up little pom poms. Once, once about my granddad taught me how to use that fly rod, and and you just that little piece of white sitting there, man, they'd suck that thing right in, and you ain't stealing the 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 the, the feathers off of a hook. That's not happening. Um, and that kind of got me hooked yeah. on doing that for a while because when you can go up and catch, you know, twenty three pound fish in two hours consistently every night through the summer on a fly rod, it doesn't matter what they are. It's fun as hell. Well, they they call carp the freshwater bonefish. Uh, mm. I've caught a few carp on a fly rod, and uh, it's a game changer. Once you once you catch one, you're like, "Ooh, that was kind of fun." Yeah, yeah. They yeah I know fish. people eat them. I'm not doing it, but man, they're fun to catch. Very. So. Um... I do like to eat fish. You got any good trout recipes or anything else like that you want to share? Um, yeah, actually, uh, my favorite way to eat trout, uh, well, I should say two. I've got two favorite uh, things that I like to do with trout. One, 
for folks that haven't done this, um, smoke smoke trout. Mm-hmm. If you've never had mm-hmm. cold smoked trout, oh, it's absolutely phenomenal. Uh, you can eat it on a cracker with cream cheese. Uh, you can eat it uh, with breakfast right along with scrambled eggs. Smoked trout is amazingly good. Uh, I oftentimes will catch trout. Uh, it's very simple. You just brine them in a, oh, I don't have the recipe on top of my head, Jack, but you brine them ahead of time. It's just a mixture of salt, pepper, a little brown sugar, uh, a bit of vinegar, I believe. And you brine these overnight ahead of time and yeah, pat them dry, put them on a smoker, mm. smoke them on low heat, 220 for four to six hours and phenomenal. Uh, the other way that I like trout a lot is blackened. And I know I'm a Midwestern guy. I'm not a Southern guy, but boy, I love a little Creole. I like spice and, uh, blackened trout over a bed of wild rice. Pretty good. Uh, blackened is the way to go, man. Uh, smoking too. When you said you started talking about smoking them, I, I will be honest that my mouth watered a little bit. I almost drooled. Um, you actually took me back about 25 years I used to work construction stuff. We did uh, underground boring with these machines that drill 400 feet underground and pull cable back in. And I had to go to South Dakota and train a crew for the company I worked for. And the guy that I was training was coming out of Minnesota. And he had he didn't have trout. He had a buttload of uh, walleye fillet, though, that he had just you know went out, didn't have time to, to, to really freeze them or anything, didn't really want to. So he just brought it all with him. And we brined those things in the sink in the hotel room. <laughs> and we we didn't cold smoke them because we didn't really have the we had like a little I had this little walkabout grill that I used to take everywhere I went so we did kind of the coals on one side with smoking but that was that was to this day some of the and I don't know if it was just the whole situation but it was one of the best things I've ever eaten in my life smoking fish is it's not just a preservation method it is delicious and I think all we did was like we went to the grocery store we bought like you know, Morton salt and like Domino sugar and just, yeah, we didn't have any clue what we were doing because we were working with, you know, we were working 14 hour days as it was. And then we were working with what we have and we're doing this out of a hotel room with a freaking you know, $25 Walmart Mark grill. But, um, let me get rid of that. And, uh, and, but yeah, man, it was amazing. And then the black and stuff, I recommend, uh, chef Paul's redfish magic for that. That is, one of my guide buddies, you know, and when somebody that guides fishing for a living says, you got to try this when it comes to cooking a piece of fish, I'm going to try it. Like, that's just, that's something I'm going to do, man. And then that and learning to black and fish, I think in general, is just a, a, a great idea as well. Uh, I love the fact that you target species that nobody loses their mind over when you keep one. Like, if you want to see people go nuts, you know, fillet a, a largemouth bass in, 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 you know, on the side of a lake. Like, oh, my God, right. what have you done? You, you could keep, you know, a limit of white bass, a limit of catfish, and a limit of trout at the same time, and no one bats an eye. Um, and I'm, I'm also big on catch and release as well. But I do like to take this resource and utilize it. I mean... Absolutely. Some of these species, like, the best thing you can do is take some out. Yes. Crappie, for instance. Oh, God, if, yes. If we, yeah, if, 
there's a reason that the conservation department or fisheries biologist tells you do not stock a pond less than an acre in size with crappie. Don't do it. They are prolific breeders. They're like rabbits. <laughs> if you put them in too small of a pond, they will take over. And then for years to come, you are left with little four- to five-inch stunted crappie. They'll never grow, and they'll actually genetically adapt where they'll become genetically dwarfed, not just environmentally dwarfed, because the ones that survive and reproduce will be naturally smaller. Generation after generation, that'll happen. There's a, a local city Be park correct. that I fish right now. It's about, it's right about an acre. Um, and it is, it, because it's like, it's surrounded by houses. Kids fish it all the time. They cannot maintain a predator population. They can't, it's impossible mm -hmm. to do. And there are sunfish in there that are two and a half inches long. And if you cut one up for bait in October, they have eggs in them. The, mm -hmm. the level of wrong, like that's wrong. It's wrong for this time of year. It's wrong for the species. It's wrong for the size. And all it is is that they've genetically adapted to making millions of themselves. And, uh, you know, what they need to do is put yeah. in like a, a slot limit on channel cats, like, You know, you can't keep them unless they're over 24 inches and throw a shitload of 18-inch channel cats in there or something because the other problem they have is they have an overflow. This is unrelated to what we're talking about. It's just kind of interesting, though. They have an overflow that when it rains, overflows significantly, and they've multiple times put bass in. And what they they were kind of smart. They put bass in that weren't big enough to keep yet. That way you got to let them go. They went the other way. But they're big enough to eat all these uh, bluegills and, and pumpkin seeds and stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, what happened, it rained. One of the kids told me he rode his bike down to where this creek is. And, like, the first big hole in the creek, there was, like, 150, you know, 10-inch largemouths. They all went over the overflow because largemouths uh -huh. are stupid, and they do that. That's one of the reasons I don't respect them as a fish. <laughs> and, uh, of course, right. as soon as it started to dry up, they all died. So, like, there's no, and then if you start taking these little purse, like, because here it's legal to use a cast net. So I'll cast net a bunch of them and throw them in, like, a 100-gallon tank in my backyard. I'll use them for trot lining for, for catfish. The park Karen comes and says, well, the park Karen comes and says, you can't use nets here. It's special regulations because we don't want you taking all the perch out of here. No. Okay, it's your park, your rules, but you're the one with two-inch fish breeding. So, I mean, mm -hmm. there there is a case for using this resource, or you end up with exactly what you yeah. said one way or another. Well, it, it, correct, and it's just being smart about it. Understand the types of fish that do well with catch and keep crappie, bluegill, white bass. Um, uh, yeah, do I like to eat trout? Sure I do. Do I keep trout? Yes, I keep trout. Am I going to keep, you know, am I going to keep a, a 27-inch trophy rainbow? No, I'm going to feel pretty good about releasing that yep. so somebody else has the same opportunity and keeping those genetics in the lake, if you will. So, uh, Nothing wrong with keeping fish. Just be smart about how you do it. Leave the big maturity fish so they can do their job and pass those genetics on. And, you know, keep the stalkers. That's yeah. what they're there for. Yeah, I mean, we do the same thing here with catfish. You know, we'll fill a cooler or a live well with channels and blues that are in that eating range. But you, you catch a 30-pound blue cat, send it back, you know. And, people, and don't right. lie to people. Don't be like, well, they're not good eating at that size. Oh, no, they're plenty good eating. There's nothing wrong with them. But, okay, you've got a cooler full of three- and four-pound fish. Why do you need to take this, this huge, genetically superior breeder out of the fishery 
that you've just taken all these all this other resource from so that that resource will always be there because that fish is going to have 500 gazillion fish in the rest of her life if you'll let that fish go. Sure. Take your picture, send her on her way. Agreed, man. Photos last, yeah, pictures last a lifetime. Uh, Jack, real quick, going back to the recipes, if I can make one other recommendation. Please do. Uh, as far as as frying fish, I have a um, Andes. Let me just say Andes. It's my favorite uh, breading. Uh, I like Andes, and I also like uh, Louisiana breading. But one thing that makes it go even further, a friend of mine years ago, his name was Bill Parrish, uh, great fisherman, loved the guy, good friend. He taught me years ago, if you like your fish crispy, it doesn't matter what breading that you're using, add instant potato flakes. Mm. Makes sense. Yes, it will crispen your breaded those fish. Oh, and it is so good. So anyway. No, that's cool. I, I, I don't do a lot of fried anymore because I've gone on a keto diet and lost like over 70 pounds and I needed to really badly. Um, I occasionally do make fried fish where I'll use actually like uh, a mixture of like Parmesan cheese uh, and pork rinds. And that makes a hell of a breading and it's, it's zero carb. Uh, now, occasionally I will, I will indulge, right? I will indulge. Yeah, yeah. It's a diet food, right? It's, it's fried with cheese and pork rinds and it's delicious. <laughs> and, and I'll use like, it sounds good. I'll use like a tablespoon or two of a standard fish fry in that. So you're, you know, you're looking at like a quarter carb per filet or something as a binder just to kind of hold it together. But occasionally I will mm-hmm. make regular old fried fish. We all have to live. And I found something in Florida last year that blew me away how good it was. It's called Everglades. And that is the best fish breading I have ever eaten. And we just recently, like, broke it out, and we did some uh, just little bullheads um, that I had. I, I don't know if you're familiar with the term shucking a bullhead. That's kind of from your neck of the woods, where basically you you cut up the back, and you, you cut into the backbone, you grab the, the and you pull it, And you end up with the head, the guts, and the skin in one hand, and the whole little fish in the other hand. And it's on the bone, but it takes like 25 to 30 seconds when you get good at it per fish. And it's just yank, yank. You should look it up. Then you're like, hey, these things are worth keeping. So I had like a little bag with like four of them in the freezer. I pulled them out like for a snack for my wife and I, and we put that... Everglades on it. I put a picture on social media. I said, no, it's not keto, and no, I'm not sorry. Uh, they were fantastic <laughs> with that stuff. So that's another thing you can try or the audience can try. Um, now we're talking about food. And I miss yeah. I miss very little about Pennsylvania from a weather standpoint, except like Pennsylvania's stupid weather is drunk in my backyard right now and won't leave. Um, mm. But what I do miss is the seasonality, the climate, and above all, freaking mushrooms, man. I... And I imagine where you live, that's with being an outdoor guy, that's probably something you forage for. I miss my ram's head mushrooms. I miss my morals. I miss, because we don't have that here. I, I, we have a mushroom or two that will pop up and 90% of them will kill you dead. Do you, you you guys forage for mushrooms up where you're at? Oh, mercy. Uh, Yes, Jack. I, I love it. I started foraging mushrooms many years ago and much like everybody else um who doesn't know about a morel mushroom 
Hmm. Um, that's where I started. That's where, you know, probably 80% of your mushroom foragers start. Everybody wants to, why not? They're so good. And I started with the morel, and, uh, I mean, face the facts, I like to eat mushrooms. Yeah. So I started venturing around. I bought a ton of books, started watching uh, YouTube videos, and just kind of taught myself as I went from there. Went out with a few buddies that were more experienced with me, learned some different varieties. Uh, I don't know how many. I think I'm up to about pushing 20, 17 to 20 different varieties that I can readily recognize walking through the woods that I know 100% are safe to eat and very good. Uh, so, yes, I forage mushrooms a lot. Uh, I, Where I live, my sister and I were a little privileged. We actually live off the grid. I'm up on the side of a plateau, on a plateau on the side of a mountain. Oh. Um, I live... I live 100% off the grid. We're fully on solar power with a backup uh, propane generator. I catch all my own water via uh, the gutter system that goes through a filtration system. I've got two cisterns in the basement. So, uh, but going back, um, being at a high elevation on the side of the mountain, I do miss. Uh, I'm like you. I grew up uh, east on the east side of Missouri River Country uh, off the Mississippi, a little town called St. Genevieve, Missouri, south of St. Louis, about 75 miles. Found a lot of morels back home. Where I'm at now, morels do not grow at a high elevation on the uh-huh. side of the mountain. But what I do have are a lot of oysters. I have a lot of uh, both varieties of chicken of the woods. I have all of the uh, the little milkies, uh, chanterelles. Boy, that's a good mushroom. Yeah. That's one of my favorites. <laughs> and uh, one of the most unusual and uncommon mushrooms, are you familiar with the, the blue milky or the blue indigo? No, I can't say that I am. Okay, but it's, delicious, it's, it's the only oh oh they're <laughs> phenomenal. It's the only blue mushroom uh, in the. It's the only one out there in the world. It's called a blue indigo or a blue milky. Uh, locals call it, uh, um, and it is a true blue mushroom. And they are fabulous. Uh, I get a lot of those where I'm at. Um, the cauliflower mushroom, boy, I could go on and on. But, yes, if you do not forage for mushrooms, now some people don't like mushrooms, but for those of you that do, yeah, get out of the woods, take a hike. Uh, it's amazing what's out there. Yeah, yeah. There's For me, the one I miss the most is we, the ram's head, uh, mataki, the, the hen of the woods. It's oh, a big, giant yes. one. And, like, the thing about those is, like, once you know where they grow, they will be there every year. They will come, they'll yep. be at the base of an oak or like another hardwood. They'll grow on the same side. And like, yep. once you have a place where you know where they are, you don't freaking tell no one. And uh, <laughs> when I was a kid, you could go into like, you could like, you go out foraging, you had more than you could deal with. You could go into a bar room. And this is the 80s, and people would pay like $10 a pound for it. I mean, it was uh, that right. prized, you know, it was that, that prized by people. Um, and I mean, we, had places you could go in a couple hours and fill up half of a freaking pickup truck bed with them. I mean, and and, yeah. and and to go to a place where like occasionally you'll find a decent mushroom around here, but mostly what I found are like medicinals, like uh, 
I have turkey tails grow on my property now, and that's that's nice. Oh, but you're not sitting down to a a plate of turkey tail. That's that's not a thing. <laughs> that's just not a thing, right? Um, uh-huh. What what do you what are your plans for your business going forward? Are you kind of like I've kind of got the point where like my business is what it is, and I'm happy with that, and I try to do a little more every day, but I'm not trying to take over the world. Do you plan to expand your business? Have you kind of reached a point of like this is what I want? Like wh- where are you at with your business? Well, it's kind of funny you mentioned that because uh, and you said something earlier uh, about. Uh, You know, having a boat, uh, I'm just going to use a boat for an example. If you're a main bass guide, uh, a boat is the majority of your expense. You have to fuel. Mm-hmm. You've got the cost of fuel. You have to gas it. Uh, and then just the maintenance on the boat, motor repairs. I just I had an unfortunate incident about three weeks ago. I was on Table Rock Lake on a bass fishing trip, and my big motor decided to blow. Just up and quit. Well, it's a fifty-seven hundred dollar repair. So uh, boats are expensive, and uh, but we have to have them, especially if you're a bass fishing guide. Mm, you're probably not going to be guiding a lot of people from the bank. So you have to have a boat. Now, I swing both sides of the fence. I conventional fish, but my passion, my true passion, is fly fishing. Uh, Do I have a bass boat? Yes. Would would I always enjoy having a well? Yes, I like to bass fish on my own time. I don't think I'm ever going to not have a boat, but I'm trying to venture more into the fly fishing realm, if you will. Mm-hmm. One, that's that's the biggest part of my passion of fishing is fly fishing. And uh, face the facts, if you have a drift boat uh, and you can man a set of oars. You don't have a big motor to worry about, and those things get around the current uh, like no tomorrow. They're wonderful and a very relaxing way to fly fish. So at some point in time, uh, I would I would enjoy, and I'm trying to progress and work more to the fly fishing side of the guiding. You know, here where I'm at, I've got Lake Tanicomo in Branson, Missouri. Uh, the White River is right down the road over here, Cotter, Arkansas. It's Oh, I guess I didn't realize where you're at. That's a hell of a great place to be. Absolutely. Uh, I live in Harrison, Arkansas, so okay. I, I literally I could be on any body of water: Table Rock, Bull Shoals, Tanicomo, Beaver, Norfolk, the White River, Just all south of you. You got the Buffalo, which is like small. You should mouth. move here, Jack. I almost did. I used to, I used to actually live just north of Hot Springs. <laughs> And we we before we chose that location, we actually were I mean right looking in that area. We we almost moved up there. Uh, we were trying to stay close enough where Dorothy, my wife, could make it home to see family, and it was a little bit too far. Uh, but it's a beautiful area. For some reason, I got a wire cross. I thought you were like from like Minnesota or Michigan or something like that. You were fishing, you know, like up there where in walleye country. Uh, Wow. Okay. Cool. That is an and that's why you have the diversity of species you do. That is like you're far enough north that trout don't die, and you're far enough south that catfish still get really big, and your season's right. longer. Yeah, that's a great place to be, man. If 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 a person it truly loves to fish, uh, and and there's a there's a lot of great places all across the nation, if you will, but. 
boy, if fresh water's your game, the Ozarks, if, if there's so much opportunity here, like you said, bass, walleye, crappie, white bass, catfish, trout. There's an endless array. Your if bigger you lakes, you got fish. big stripers, man. I mean, like, yeah. There's, yes. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Yeah, you can stay busy here. Well, if somebody wants to visit your backyard and uh, go out on a trip with you, uh, how do they find out more about you? They can go to uh, www.mozark, M-O-Z-A-R-K, mozarkfishscapes.com. They can also uh, go to Facebook. I have a Facebook page, again, under Mozart Fishscapes. And I noticed you also have an Instagram, so I'll make sure that uh, yeah. and all the other links that you sent me are in the show notes today so people can uh, look you up and get in touch with you, man. And I had a great time. I knew I would because I can't talk about this stuff and not have fun. Uh, but uh, Well, yeah. But it was it was a great discussion, and, and, and Darren, I really appreciate you taking your time to be with us today. Yes, Jack, thank you. I, I appreciate being on the show, and once again, my sister and I are longtime listeners. Uh, uh, we've learned a lot from you, and I encourage uh, anybody else to do the same if they haven't uh, joined your podcast as well. And, uh, yeah, it's it's wonderful. Thank you for letting uh, let me participate and share some of, some of your time. All right, well, that was a great interview. Um, again, I have his Facebook, his Instagram, and his website in the show notes. But I also found he has reviews on TripAdvisor. And, you know, whenever you're going to spend your money to hire a guide, I recommend that you look to see if they're independently reviewed anywhere. Because you're taking a full day or a half day of your time and your money, and you're betting, like, on that person to give you a great experience. And nothing tells you more about what that experience would be like than other people who have had the experience describing it. And I think you'll find, if you read his reviews on TripAdvisor, he's certainly a guy I would hire if I happen to be going to or be in the area and looking for a day out on the water. With that, let's uh, go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you, if you want to help support this show and the work that we do, you can do your online shopping at a little website, tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. You go there, and no matter what you buy online, you will help us as long as you start out there. That's a pretty easy way. doesn't cost you anything extra to do. And all the items that are there that are reviewed, um, you know I own it, I bought it, I used it. And, uh, and today's item, you know that's the case because there's like about two dozen videos on YouTube of various projects where I've used these things. So the Barina LED Grow Lights. They're available in six packs, uh, four packs, and they're available in two foot and four foot lengths. And these are the pink kind of space age looking ones, and they work really great. And I've been using them a long time. Uh, I have a couple notes. Number one, both sizes are marked down today. One's marked down like five bucks a pack. The other one's marked down like ten. So it's not a huge markdown, but a markdown's a markdown, and they're already a great value. The other thing is, some of y'all don't like the space age look in pink lights, or maybe you think that they might attract a random Barney Fife because it must mean you're growing the sacred herb in a place where you're not supposed to if it's seen through your window or something like that. And they are a little bit more conspicuous. Um, several people in this audience have tried the white light versions of the Barina lights side by side, same plants, etc., have not noticed hardly any difference in growth. So the white lights apparently work just as good. 
Um, the thing is, Barina didn't have two-footers. But if you want four-footers, they have them in four and six-packs. The six-packs make a lot more sense financially in white. They're about the same price as the pink ones. Work just as good. And they do look a little more natural. Some of y'all doing maybe some aquaponics projects using fish tanks or something like that. They might be a little bit more aesthetically pleasing for as well. They also have a new product out, and it's linked in the write-up today. It's six two-foot lights on a fitting, putting them into a two-by-two two square configuration. Let me tell you something about these lights. These guys put out a lot of freaking light. That would be a massive amount of light across a two-by-two two configuration. However, for certain applications, intense growing, etc., it would be really cool. So that's worth checking out as well. Um, I just want to throw out there that like we are headed into a winter that I expect to be I'm not worried about COVID when they say a dark winter, but this is going to be a dark, cold winter from a weather standpoint. We have been leading up to this pattern for a while. It is October, and with the exception of yesterday, in the last five days, it hasn't been over 42 degrees in Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas. Yesterday, it got up to about 48 for about 15 minutes at the end of the day when the sun came out. I thought it was going to be nice out today. It's cold as crap out there today. It's somewhere in the low 40s again. At least it stopped spitting rain. Again, you uh, northerners, your freaking weather's drunk in my backyard. Pass the hell out and won't leave. I wish you'd come get it and get it out of here. Um, but it, it is indicative of where we're headed. And the honest people doing kind of alternative media on climate have been saying for a long time, we're heading into a grand solar minimum. We're going to have colder temperatures in the winter. Whether or not that is why this winter will be this way, I do not know, and I do not claim to know. I do believe that overall long-term pattern is pretty set over the next hundred years, as, as, as daunting as that might be. This year, it may not be that we're actually fully seeing it. It may just be straight-up, everyday shift in weather pattern. Just a shift in how fronts are moving through this year and things like that. I mean, we get, in summer, we look at El Nino and La Nina. There's similar patterns that are set, that change and rotate coming out of northern climates. And the people with the grand solar minimum story and all could be wrong. I'll, I'll give you that, too. That could all be wrong. But I've seen this before. I've seen this before. The last time the weather patterns looked like they do now was the first winter that I was here on Nine Mile Farm. Not the first winter we moved in, because we moved in in January of, I think, 2013. It was the winter of 2013-2014 here. We got a lot of snow. I near cracked my skull open on ice. Uh, and this is back when Josiah, my intern, was here, right? Um, that occurred around Thanksgiving-ish time. Uh, the roads got iced in several times. And this is, I mean, if this is Pennsylvania, who cares, right? This is Dallas. We spent a lot of time below freezing. We still had plenty of temperate days in the, our winter that season, but we had a lot more harsh, cold, freezing weather. And north of here, it was even more so. There was that one ice storm that stretched from, like, Texas to freaking New England. Remember, that was the same year that shit happened. I, what does this all have to do with, with the grow lights? This would be a good year to be doing some indoor growing. I'm just saying. And what tends to happen is people wait to do these things, and we'll wait and see. Um, I think you're going to see more lockdowns, et cetera, and I think you'll see another frenzied buying of all the people wanting to get into stuff like this. Right now it's freely available and cheap. 
this, a little indoor mini greenhouse or two, and uh, whether you do it hydroponically, whether you do it soil-based, whether you do microgreens, man, there's so much you can do. It's a good time to start playing around with it. We're heading into the holidays. You're going to have downtime. And if nothing else, if everything goes wonderful and spring comes when it's supposed to and, and we're all ready to get back out in the garden, then you use this for all your plants starting next season and it pays for itself because plants are expensive. Just some thoughts. And remember, no matter what you buy, lights, camera, action, doesn't matter, uh, whether it's listed there or not, as long as you start there, uh, you help support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. And more will be coming to tspaz soon. I don't just mean more product. I mean more options. With that, let's go ahead and wrap up with our song of the day. Song of the day today is by a country music artist that's not one of my favorites. I, I, I don't dislike the guy. I just I think some of his music's just a little too redneck for me. I don't know if that's the right term for it, but um, and not harsh redneck like redneck, slow redneck. But it's Randy Travis. He also has some pretty good songs, and this is among the better ones. It's called The Box, and I think that. The lesson I want people to take from this song is not the one that's directly stated. It's kind of indirectly stated and I think often missed. The story of the song seems very much to be a real story to me, whether it was Randy's life or someone that I don't know who wrote it. I didn't research anything's life. This just sounds so specific for a song. It, it reminds me of the first time I heard uh, I Drive Your Truck by Lee Bryce. I knew it probably wasn't his story, but I knew I knew that story was an actual story. Even if it had been changed a little bit to fit music, I knew immediately, you know, misty-eyed, that that was a real story, and it turned out to be the case. I feel like that's the case with this one. And, and I bet you there's probably a thousand people that could tell this story about their own father or grandfather. It's a tough-ass man that's never really seen as soft and caring and loving. And when they open up this box after he's gone and they find the things that were most important to him, they find out that what was most important to him was them. And they have this incredible new understanding of who that man was. And I think people look at that and go, yeah. And I can tell you that I've seen this happen in different kind of ways with different people. I've seen it not just like people that there was never doubted how much they loved their family, but they never really were known how much beyond that their impact was. When my mother-in-law passed away, Grace, we all loved her. Her family loved her. She had It wasn't like this where her love was guarded or anything. But when we went to that church for her funeral service, the number of people who showed up and told stories about how she had impacted their life, every single member of the family looked at each other in complete awestruck. And maybe there was nothing in that one that that she could have done to be more known for who she was. She just lived her life, and she like I said, she wasn't guarded. But so many people, especially men, because it's necessary for us to be strong, for us to be leaders, to stand up, and to stand on the ass of kids once in a while when they need it. And young boys especially, I think, part of their problem is they don't have enough people standing on their ass to keep them in line, because there's a point in the period of a young man's life where that needs to happen. But, there should be no doubt about the other side of who you are as a father, a grandfather, a leader, and a man. If they find a box like this after you're gone, man, they should say, well, of course that was what was in it. They shouldn't be surprised. Think of that as you spend your dash. Being that tough guy, being that leader, doing the hard things when they're necessary, but making sure the people that you're doing it for know why it's being done 
and never doubt how you really feel. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. On the top shelf in the closet, in the workshop where he spent his extra time, was a dusty wooden box, but I had never noticed till that Then we set it on the table And carefully we opened up the top And stared into the memory That he kept inside the box There was a letter from Mama When she went out to Reno To help her sister out in 62 flower from Hawaii when they went on vacation it was the first time that my daddy ever flew and the pocket knife I gave to him on Father's Day years ago I thought it had been lost we all thought his heart was made of solid That was long before we found the box I guess we always knew it But I love you was hard for him to say Some men show it easily And some just never seem to find a way But that night I began to see A softer side of someone I had lost I saw the love he kept inside the first time When we opened up the box There was a picture that was taken When he and mom were dating Standing by his 1944 And a faded leather Bible Yet when he was baptized, I guess no one understood him like the Lord. And a poem that he had written, all about his wife and children. The tender words he wrote were quite a shock. We all thought his heart was made of solid rock. But that was long before we found We all thought his heart was made of solid rock, but that was long.